0: The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware.
1: Thank you, Jason. And joining me in the studio today is Associate Professor Benjamin Fleury Steiner, but I'm going to call him Ben, as I think most of his friends do. Um, He has... He's been with the university since 2000. Um, He's a a veteran of Desert Storm, is that correct? Correct. And he is joining us to talk a little bit about some of the research he's done and that's led to the book, Disposable Heroes, The Betrayal of the African-American Veteran. Thanks for joining us today, Ben.
2: Thank you, Richard.
1: Now, your own experience has played a role in your developing this idea, this interest, this research interest, hasn't it? I mean.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's not a book I thought I would write, but, um, yeah, I was an enlisted army reservist, uh, in the early nineties and, uh, my unit was activated for operation desert storm, the first Gulf war. So I spent, uh, three or four months, uh, essentially ducking (laughs) scud missiles, um, And uh, after the military as a vet, my life took different turns into sociology, and here I am now as a professor.
1: (laughs) I think you you told me that you took advantage of some of the safety net and some of the options that were available to you as a veteran, didn't you?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think everything uh, in terms of my own ability to transition after after the war was one— living in a middle class privileged household but also um going back to the a university uh where i was able to take advantage of the gi bill and then also some scholarships um that really uh, allowed me to to go you know close to tuition free
1: that's not always the case though is it it's it's a different experience for a lot of returning veterans
2: Yeah, and that's really what drew me to do the book, Um, you know, all these years later after I've been out of the service and not writing about military issues. But, you know, something that had stuck with me for for a long time was the image of the homeless veteran and and also seeing fellow vets, you know, that didn't have the kind of background I had and having to struggle and, and grind it out. Uh, to try to make it back into civilian society. It's a much more difficult transition than I think anyone can really imagine unless you go through it.
1: So sort of the sense is, hey, thank you for serving, and that's it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think our our country, you know, we love the parades and the flag waving and the uh, ribbons and all that stuff, which I love too, and I appreciate uh, as well. But I think the history, really, um, most our history, has been pretty shameful when it comes to the treatment of, of veterans generally and um, marginalized veterans in, in particular, um, poor veterans and you know, disproportionately veterans of color. That's why. For me, I, I focused on uh, marginalized, impoverished African-American veterans.
1: You told me when we met last week that when veterans came back from World War II and Korea, there was a whole reintegration program that went on. But starting with the Vietnam War, that stopped happening, didn't it?
2: Right. There's six months of reintegration, and um, you know it was taken seriously by the military. It's not to say that it was a honeymoon, <laughs> um, but at least it gave them an opportunity to have some support and, tra- you know, in making the transition. Whereas with Vietnam, um, the out processing was very quick and, uh, you know, it was such a devastating war that so many of these, you know, folks came back as walking wounded and, you know, were, were cut, uh, cut loose back into their communities.
1: And a lot of them had what, we would have what we would now call p t s d but it wasn't really recognized i think until what nineteen eighty
2: right and that was something in the book that was really it was disturbing um because you have the vets coming back to Wilmington and i interviewed many from the Vietnam era who served in combat, you know uh on the front lines, one Carl in particular that I talk a lot about in the book, his experience was just. Astonishing because he was having nightmares and all that stuff uh, that associated with PTSD, but it was not recognized by the American Psychiatric Association for Vietnam Vets. It was not recognized by the VA. So Carl went, uh, you know, almost 10 years without any treatment, uh, you know, forced really to try to survive on his own.
1: So it's, it just sort of I th- get the sense that you were running into veterans just in various different places, and that's sort of how your interest got piqued. And and particularly, like you're saying, this guy Carl, he came back from Vietnam, and what did he find in Wilmington?
2: Well, Carl um, actually was from rural Maryland, and he grew okay, up. I'm sorry, he, he grew up in the height of segregation, uh, Jim Crow segregation, and. And so uh, he enlisted, Um, he wasn't drafted, he enlisted uh, with really the dream of something better for himself, and um, uh, began in Germany, loved being in the service, actually, and then was shipped off to Vietnam. And then when he returned home, um, he and his family, his wife and son, lived in New Jersey, he was a, a construction worker. Um, but pretty quickly had a a downward spiral into self-medicating and struggling, um, you know, to keep his head above water. And the way I met Carl was, and many of the veterans at the beginning of the study, was um, having access to a a transitional housing uh, program, which I I interviewed many of the vets at this program in one of the poor neighborhoods in, in Wilmington. Uh, and so several of them were, or most of them were from the from the general area, uh. But you know the VA will funnel you into a program wherever there's a bed, and so there was a bed available for Carl, and he he had been, as I learned, he had been in and out of many of these kinds of programs. So it was actually a sober transitional housing program, is what it was called, uh, in in Wilmington.
1: Now. I didn't move to this area until 1983, so I did not experience the Wilmington riots and that kind of thing. But we did have – you told me there was one story of a veteran you, you, you met who uh, came home from Vietnam, yeah. was dressed in his uniform, and what happened?
2: It was uh – uh. It's really, you know, an astonishing time because a lot of us are, you know, quite well aware of the the long riots in Wilmington. There were riots after Dr. King's assassination all over the country, and I assume these kinds of situations went on. But it's not something you think about that uh, Vietnam veterans, war heroes, folks that made the ultimate sacrifice for their country, lived in Wilmington in those communities. So. Mel is one that I pro- profile at length. His life in Disposable Heroes. Returned to Wilmington to find his whole neighborhood under National Guard occupation, and um, Mel also was a combat infantry, uh, actually he's Marine, and uh, thought that the city was under siege, and had uh several including one serious confrontation with the National Guardsman. Um that thankfully, uh, as he tells the story, friends intervened and stopped him from I think probably beating up the this this National Guardsman. But it it's just a surreal uh moment, you know, to think about all of those vets coming home, this enormous war to their, their neighborhood, uh, expecting support. And in fact, the very army that they're serving has occupied their neighborhood.
1: It's uh, an issue that really has been going on, I think, though, going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, where somebody encourages the blacks, the African-Americans, to join the army, join the Marines, help us out in this war, and we'll give you some kind of benefit.
2: Yeah, I mean the the story of African Americans is in the military is, you know, it's a nuanced, but I mean uh, essentially you had runaway slaves who became uh, mem- members of the Union Army including for Frederick Douglass, one of the great uh orders and lead- black leaders and military uh personnel as well. Um and and so the story through the revolution and then you know really going uh particularly at reconstruction, which is this period right after slavery, you had en- enormous numbers of freedmen who are you know which is the term for the the former slaves um enlist in the Union army uh to show the, you know their true allegiance to the cause of racial equality and freedom um The sad thing of course, is that they were treated as You know, not only second class citizens, but also really second class soldiers, you know, in segregated units, not entitled to the same kind of benefits as as others in the military. And so that's been a a long part of the history. um, This remarkable patriotism and resilience on the part of a people that suffered two centuries of human bondage and yet were willing to generation after generation after generation make the sacrifice to their country. Um, but everything that they were able to obtain, and later on, you know, Korea and, and then Vietnam to some extent, but really uh, to benefit from GI, the GI Bill and veterans housing programs and things that really did advance mobility for African Americans in the U.S., they had to fight tooth and nail. For all of that, it wasn't just given to them. It was, it was struggles. It was activism. It was um, using the law to to force equality in the military.
1: Coming back from Vietnam, it was wasn't just black veterans. It was all the veterans who sort of became organized, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, I mean, the post Vietnam experience is just remarkable because you have so many things happening at once. You know, you have. Real strong mobilization around civil rights issues you know um that touched the lives of, of African Americans but also uh, women and and other minorities who who were organized uh and the and veterans played a a pivotal role in the civil rights movement uh really going back to Korea, you had veterans who came home and refused um two, frankly, refused. We hear the story of, you know, the great Rosa Parks, but you had Korean War veterans who absolutely refused to comply with Jim Crow um, in numbers, and uh, the spirit of that defiance then in the post-Vietnam era, of course, as you said, um, you see huge mobilization of what becomes the um, Vietnam vets against the war movement including our you know Senator John Kerry was a big leader in that um but they had uh, i mean those activists Ron Kovic and others who were involved in that Max Cleland who were involved in the uh Vietnam anti-Vietnam movement who were veterans really were the ones responsible for the creation of a truly uh, modern VA or at least a VA for the first time that was um uh, ordered to address their needs, to make their uh, voices heard in Washington. Um, Yeah, so the the activism of of veterans on the ground in a very grassroots way led to a recognition that really hadn't uh, happened, at least in the way that it cross-cut so many. Because remember, three million uh, Americans were involved in the Vietnam War. Fifty-eight thousand died. You know, over a million suffered uh, tr- traumatic experiences. It's just such an enormous and costly war. So it mobilized an enormous coalition of veterans.
1: Sounds like this that that coalition of veterans was an integrated coalition of veterans, wasn't
2: it? It was. It was. There was some struggles. Um, you know, I don't want to candy coat it because the best histories of the Vietnam. Vets Against the War Movement, um, the book war, war, uh, Home to War, which really documents it in detail, shows that some of the African-American veterans in leadership positions really wanted to make race equality an issue, but ultimately the leadership, uh, John Curry and others, decided it wasn't pragmatic to incorporate a racial justice platform. But instead, to focus more particularly on um, access to services and things for veterans, um, and and one can understand given the, the 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 times. But I think it's it looking back, it's a sad kind of moment because it was, I think, a squandered opportunity where veterans' rights could have been coalition builded around uh, racial equality. and and other issues to create, you know, a really uh, more profound voice about these issues. And that's one of the things I try to argue in Disposable Heroes. It's not just about veterans. It's about people that uh, many who came out of poverty and equality and the military for them was a way out. It was a way to realize the so-called American dream, and that was thwarted. Uh, because of the conditions that were left in place, um, racial segregation and poverty. And so I think the experience of the veteran coming home to that really vivifies more broadly these entrenched conditions of racial inequality. But the movement decided not to to coalition build. And again, one can understand, given the times.
1: And Nixon, President Nixon was using the veterans as a scapegoat at the time. And so I think all the veterans wanted to really make sure that they all started getting something resembling um, decent services.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, President Nixon, um, really the the treatment of Vietnam vets and the the lies that were, you know, now officially have been proven through detailed analysis of Pentagon studies, this sort of myth of the addicted veteran in Vietnam. Now we can absolutely conclude that veterans used drugs in Vietnam, um, but the story wasn't so much one of drug use, marijuana and opiates. The story that was proffered by the Nixon administration to, you know, tar all veterans coming home and, and also to explain the the loss, the losses uh, or, or the failed war was one of the addicted veteran. That somehow these veterans had become, uh, you know, not just uh, not fulfilling their obligations as soldiers, but unpatriotic. And now that they're home, frankly, well, while N- Nixon danced with the idea of, of public health response to you know, issues veterans faced. When you look at the history, Nixon uh, really, uh, he he defunded veteran centers. He really was quite aggressive in his own war against veterans. And I think, again, a lot of it was a politically calculated move to tie the the upheavals around civil rights, the loss of the war, um, Politically, for Nixon to show that he was tough on crime and also, quite frankly, to appeal to the interests of white middle class voters who were, you know, scared of the instability in the society at the expense of veterans.
1: We're talking today with Ben Flury Steiner from the University of Delaware's Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice, and he's talking with us about his research into the area of what happens to veterans when they come home from our conflicts. And his most recent book is called Disposable Heroes, The Betrayal of African-American Veterans. Let's fast forward a little bit to from Vietnam to um, you know, some of the veterans who are contemporaries of yours and, and people who come back from some of the deployments right now. I, I think you told me last week when we were chatting that a lot of the veterans programs require the veteran to reach out and find what's there. And that, that, that's a problem for people who come back to you know, the marginalized economic environment in which they um, their families live.
2: That's right. You know, um, there's a couple of things to be said here. You know, one is the illusion that somehow in the 80s, and uh you know, the late seventies in particular that you have a, a colorblind society. In fact, you have um tremendous racial white racial backlash against reintegration. Um here in Delaware, other states across the country. Boston was probably the most notice uh noteworthy um Backlash against busing efforts to to integrate African-Americans had been denied for generations access to educational opportunities. And one veteran profiled in the book, Gerald, actually had no real, his pathway, he was a a, a really good student, uh, had serious family who was very much about education. But during the busing upheavals, um, there were race riots in his high school and the senior year his senior year he was involved in essentially defending a, a white friend who was um tarred as a as a uh, i'm not going to use the n word but as an n lover and uh that resulted in his expulsion and you know, so he went and his only alternative was a military took the asfab exam uh, did very well, wound up in the military, but through through a, a variety of events, um, ended up in the jungles of Honduras. And that's another part, too, of the book that that folks uh, may not be aware of that's important, is you have all of these internecine conflicts that happen, particularly under the Reagan era, having to do a lot with the drug war, um, because of a law called the the Posse Comitatus Act that goes back to the 1800s that actually prohibited military from be, from being involved in drug drug anti-drug enforcement operations that law was amended under Reagan or essentially strip mined under Reagan to allow military uh to be the driving force in anti-drug war operations internationally so you had wars in Latin America little internecine wars um, designed to fight the drug war, but expose veterans like Gerald to um, firebombing and combat kinds of experiences. Uh, And for him coming home with with PTSD and it was just, I mean, to call it an an upheaval in his life is an understatement. But we can link back why Gerald even went that course to the – white racial backlash against integration so the you know the past is uh or as uh, faulkner said right the 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 past isn't even past and i think that that is just a profound insight when you think about the history of racial race relations in america the 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 failure to really substantively deal with racial inequality is as always come back to haunt the, the society. And I think Gerald's story, you know, profoundly captures it in the book as someone more of my generation, a little bit older, in his early 50s, um, but a what you'd call a Cold War warrior under
1: Reagan. So veterans like Gerald have to reach out and find the benefits, and that's not always easy for them. I mean, I, th- I think that we we did... Talk about um, before, before we came into the studio. About there are some uh, places like the Coatesville, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Veterans um, Hospital that are quite good and run programs. And but in general, these marginalized people come home and they're about done with the whole bureaucracy thing.
2: That's right, and you know, having gone through it myself, it's it's not a pleasant experience. Um, you just want to go on with your life. It's hard. Uh, There's been a lot to improve the uh, the VA. But, you know, from a sociological perspective, we're very critical of this idea of bad apples, that there are, like, people at the VA that want people to suffer. The problem isn't so much of individuals. It's a problem of an institution that's under-resourced historically. It's gotten more resources under Obama, unprecedented, actually, in terms of its resources. But it's still a, a government bureaucracy that's not set up to be proactive. And with all of the problems veteran, many veterans come home with, and we're already seeing it with the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and we're going to see much more of this, um, as you said, compound that with coming home to a marginalized, impoverished community with all, all of the things you have to deal with um, in that in that situation, and then to, to try to navigate this bureaucracy, find this bureaucracy, um, get access to this bureaucracy. It's just uh, an injustice. It it should be, there should be access. It should be much more proactive. There should be veteran satellite or VA satellite offices in places like Riverside, Eastside, um, Southbridge, you know, these, these communities that are representative of impoverished, segregated black communities all over the country, but there isn't. And so what happens then is the vets that come home to those communities don't know what's available to them, and on top of that are, are struggling just to survive.
1: We've been talking today with Ben Fleury-Steiner from the University of Delaware's Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice, and he's been talking with us about the research and that he's did to come up with his new book, disposable heroes, the betrayal of African-American veterans. And I think we could summarize your statements along the lines of a lot of these folks would join the military, being promised an upward career, and they come home and they find the injustices multiplied.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the injustice is experienced by so many in the country under the this massive unemployment and all these problems to try to sustain a life think about you know veterans that return to that Um, they too have to try to find a way back in uh, to go on with their lives to realize the american dream and uh, it's denied and so that's a struggle that that will continue uh, for the foreseeable future
1: this has been very thought-provoking thanks very much for joining us today ben it
2: was my pleasure richard thank you for having me
0: Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org. One, two, three. You are listening to 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1 Newark.